Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Doug Jadajan. Whoa, do I pronounce that right? Is it is it the TJ? Is that the Jaden? It's actually Jaden. The T is silent. So the T is silent. Yeah. Oh, that makes it so much easier for me. It, it makes it easier for us too. <laughs> Why don't we just drop that T then? <laughs> I imagine somewhere up the family line that was a consideration. <laughs> okay. Doug Jaden is his name. Comes out of the Midwest. He comes from the state I grew up in. I'm a bit proud of that state, state of Kansas. He's from the Kansas City area from a suburb called Olathe, Kansas. And we're going to cover two topics today. Uh, two topics. One is what about the food chain? What about the food supply? What if that supply is broken? What if you can't get food? Now, if we'll touch a little bit on agrarianism or not, that's up to him, whether we go to that topic. And then we're going to talk on something that I, I bet I bet 99% of our listeners have never thought of or heard of, and that is local currency. What happens if you have a grand reset and, well, you have to develop local currency? We're going to find out from Doug Jaden today. Doug, thank you so much for being on. Give the first 60 seconds. Tell who you are, give your life story in 60 seconds, then we got to get into those two topics. No, thank you, Jim. And I, it's, a, it's truly an honor to be invited to participate and share with your listeners. And, uh, you know, I think what really kind of pulled me into both of these topics is I grew up on a farm in Southwest Nebraska, a wheat farm, and loved it, got my fingers in the dirt, really enjoyed working with creation, seeing what it could produce. And when I got older, and that is in my teen years, my father said, you know, this is in the late 70s, early 80s, he said, you know, Doug, I don't think this uh, economy is going to be able to support you and I and the transfer of the farm to you. So I went off to college, you know, got a business degree with some computer science uh, added to that, took off and had a career where I got into technology, owned a small business, um, got involved in the tech industry, rode that tech boom in 2000 up and then wrote it back down after the dot-com crash. And I began to ask myself why that happened and, and why it was that wealth could be so easily created and destroyed. So that moved me into the realm of looking at biblical economics from a global perspective, from a macro perspective. And, and you know, subsequently I got involved with some of the Ron Paul days and sound money and, and kind of went on a speaking tour around that from a biblical perspective. And in a sense, just continued to dig into scripture. What does scripture say about economics, money? And that led me to some very interesting places when I went back into Genesis, and uh, which I think is where we can start with a lot of things and try to determine God's heart. So that's, that's really what brought me to where we are today. I've written a few books around these topics and, and just am, am, again, honored to be able to share it with you and your listeners today. Uh, right at the front, what are the name of the books you've written? Uh, the first one is called I Came to Give, and the second one is called My Ways. The third one is Cultivate and Keep, and together they kind of make a trilogy. The first one goes into the history of money and economics beginning in Genesis. The second one looks at uh, biblical principles, uh, the five biblical principles that are fleshed out in that book and contrasts it between God's ways and man's ways. And then the third one, Cultivate and Keep, is really the subject I think we'll begin with here, and that is why is food so important in the body of Christ? What is our responsibility to steward that? And, and what is the biblical support around that? Okay, let's start with the aspect of the food chain. We hear a lot today, 
and it's very disconcerting to hear it about the potential of the food chain being broken. We saw that a little bit when truckers, uh, trucks couldn't get through, various things have happened of that nature. We're hearing a lot more talk of that. We hear a bit empty bare shelves, shelves in other countries. We've not seen that here hardly at all. So talk to us about that topic. Well, it's part of a larger overall problem with the economy in general as it became globalized over the last 20 to 30 years. And that is a, in itself a problem with the design of the economic system. If you look at God's principle of e e economics and the system that he would design, he would design sustainability and resiliency into it. That's just a natural outcropping of how he designed creation. I think he intended us to pick up on that Hey, here's how the flow of energy and nutrients go in a sustainable multi-pathway uh, ecosystem. And the globalists got a hold of it and said, no, we know how to make this really efficient so we can squeeze more money out of it and make bigger, larger corporations dominate it. And unfortunately, that introduced fragility into it, where single points of failure can cause the whole system to break down. And that certainly applies to food now. I think there's, I mean, there was a study done a number of years ago. I don't know what the actual number is now, but food travels an average of 1,500 miles before it reaches your plate from farm to plate. And that in and of itself is extremely inefficient and it introduces all kinds of, of uh, pathways or, or especially if the pathways are, are, are few, where if there's a disruption in those, all of a sudden it can't find its way to your plate. And that's the situation we're in today. Uh, so, so in terms of, is your call for localization? Yeah, well, I think that that actually goes back to, again, the principle of localism versus centralization. Centralization, generally speaking, is never a good thing. We see that in scripture. Uh, authority was distributed in the law. I mean, uh, they, you know, Moses, uh, he, he did that in terms of setting up captains and, and thousands and, and people who, who oversaw hundreds and tens. And the decision-making process going down into and managing at the local level has always been a biblical principle. So as stewards of creation, it makes sense that, especially with something as important as food, that we would take that principle as well and say, okay, how can we have people, how can we set up people who know about these systems, who know about how to manage creation, and have them manage something as important as getting food on the plates of our citizens. And that's a responsibility of the church, by the way, as well. Uh, we're responsible for that system and managing that ecosystem. And there's a whole uh, fleshing out in Scripture in Genesis we could go to on that, but we've not done a good job of it, and we've lost that. And so what we're seeking to do is say, let's get back to those basics and understand those principles Let's retake jurisdiction over something God gave us in Genesis chapter 2 when he told Adam, hey, cultivate and keep the garden, serve it and protect it, kind of as the foundation for all economic activity. It's kind of important. So we need to kind of go, just go back to those principles and then reestablish those relationships. Okay, we've got local producers, who, and this is becoming more of a thing where people are doing gardening and small farming and uh, regenerative agriculture, that's another thing that's starting to kind of get uh, seeded into the culture where people are getting back to how God in, intended creation to produce an abundance. And let's connect those on a local level. That way we become less dependent on this global food supply chain. Okay, there's several things you've said here that I just want to stop and unpack so much. 
the church is responsible for the for this this to manage this ecosystem. Uh, I need you to flesh that out, and uh, then talk about the kind of agrarianism that is cropping up. Well, what is regenerative ag agriculture? So talk to us about that. And then how serious is this potential uh, disruption, serious disruption in our food chain that, that could be uh, on us very soon? Is that is that fear-mongering or is there some potential truth to that? Well, I'll answer the last question first because it's quickest. Yeah, it's definitely real. Um, the United Nations has made it very clear and we're seeing in their actions that they intend to squeeze out small farmers and kind of corporatize the whole uh, the whole process. And again, in a system where fragility is present and it can break down, that threatens everything. So there's no question that that, that is not only a threat, it's I think what could be an imminent threat. And, and on the UN right there, you're saying the UN is that part of their sustainable uh, the 2030 goals? Is that part of it to to take agriculture out of the hands of individual small farms and and corporate? Yeah, it's definitely that's not the way they language it for certain. But if you look into their documentation, that's the end goal. I mean, it's handing the the management of the food supply to their large multinational globalist corporations. And that's just it's not difficult to discern that when you look into their documentation. That's a pretty disturbing. I grew up as a, on a farm as well. If you're southeast Nebraska, I wasn't all that far from you in North Central Kansas. Uh, but that that is uh, very tough to hear. I, I posed uh, so so a disruption of the food, either natural or man-made, is is quite possible. I should say, yeah, yeah, either natural disaster or through a man-made disaster. You're saying that's that's quite that's quite possible. Well, let's let's look at what's going on even in Ukraine. Sadly, with the war there, Ukraine is the bed breadbasket of Europe. And what people don't realize is that uh, because of the war, not only is production dramatically decreased in the country, but food supply stocks. You know, the inventory that's there, the buffer that's there, has been just decimated. So we we're in a situation where it's not a good it's not a good situation to have real time inventory delivery of something like food, because if you have a crop failure on top of that, we have a drought in the Midwest here in the United States, anything. And all of a sudden that margin that keeps the system flowing is gone and the the food shortages then become global very quickly. And that is that's a real possibility sitting right in front of us. Are you seeing indicators in our own country right now that indicate, indicate that something like that could be imminent? Well, yes, in some ways. I mean, when my wife goes shopping for certain things, we used to always have stocked on the shelves. Occasionally, they'll just be out uh, and it's not there. I mean, we take it for granted, especially here in the United States, that it's always going to be there. Well, we're finding out that it's not the case, and that can very rapidly spread, especially when base products such as wheat, which is a big uh, export of the Ukraine, if those supplies get chopped off, then all of a sudden all the wheat byproducts, everything that's refined and made out of wheat, bread, and cereals, you name it, crackers, <laughs> those kinds of things begin to, uh, begin to have, we, we see shortages of on the local uh, food, in our local stores and we're starting to see that. How realistic is it to pull it back in and localize when we're so corporatized? Huh? 
I mean, so so I get my crackers shipped out of Atlanta. Uh, how, how do you, other than going to local farmers and getting acquainted with them and doing a garden that you mentioned, how do you really localize something that is like an octopus with limbs spread everywhere? You hit the nail on the head there, Jim, with that question. Um, it's not going to be easy and it's going to take time. It's, we have to play a long game on this. And that's where the church comes in and understanding what's our role in this. We may have to face food shortages because we've let this thing get, get a foothold in the global economy. You know, we've, we've turned over our responsibility to manage creation to the kings of the earth. They have not done a good job. They're not going to give it back to us easy. And the process to do that's going to take time. So it's not like, you know, next year we're going to have a bunch of new regenerative farming people out there that we can go to and they're going to be able to feed the entire population. No, uh, but we do, I believe, need to take steps to move in that direction because this crisis that we're facing, I think you would agree, geopolitically, economically, has years yet to run. So the sooner that we as the church can step back in and reclaim, begin reclaiming jurisdiction over these critical areas, the less impact that it's going to have in the coming years. And it's gonna take time. And it is absolutely going to take time, but we can begin that process today. Now you're saying some very interesting things. We turned over the management of the creation to the kings of society. The church is gonna to need to reclaim jurisdiction. I pastor for four and a half decades plus, and even with my farm background, I never once advocated that the church was responsible for the food supply chain and that we should be figuring, I, I did think in terms of how do we, if we have a natural man-made disaster, how do we begin to cluster and care for each other? But I, I never ever provided a thought of, okay, we're gonna form relationships with 16 farmers around here whom we know, because I'm in a metropolitan area like you are, it's not like I know very many people in A. And, 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 and so in what way can a typical pastor, I'm not talking about a pastor who's in Alva, Oklahoma, where he's in a rural setting and has context uh, and relationship with a lot of rural people. Uh, I'm talking about what do you do in a metropolitan area as a pastor to reclaim jurisdiction jurisdiction, and to take that authority for the management of creation back from the kings of the earth? How do you do that? Begins with a long train of education. And that's just, we have to start and help begin to seed these principles into the minds of the church, the church universal, across local communities, metropolitan areas, so that they, they can begin to think this way and change how they live and just the foundation again i my last book is almost entirely dedicated to the to the ex you know expo, exposing out of scripture why this is the case but let me just give you kind of the the base foundation of that teaching in genesis 2:15 god put adam in the garden and told him to cultivate and create or cultivate it and keep it now the hebrew that surrounds those words the context there is to serve it and protect it and in so doing, that created kind of a de facto covenant with humanity that through Adam, we're supposed to serve and protect creation. And he gave that even before he created Eve. Well, why did he do that? 
And that's because doing so establishes really an intimate relationship, a reciprocal relationship between us and creation and with Jesus, through whom all creation was made, which you get into some scriptures that are pretty interesting about that. And so there's a lot wrapped up in that relationship. But that, that relationship enables humanity to work with God and his design of creation to produce in abundance the resources needed to fulfill the directive that's given in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. Without honoring that covenant, the ability for us to do that goes away because without food, you die. And without people, you don't have a kingdom to build. I mean, it's really that foundational and interesting when you look at it that way. So when, when you pull it down to that level using basic logic, we can, we can kind of conclude that food and water are the foundation of all economics. Because again, without them, there's no people, there's no kingdom. And that's where we, we lost sight of that basic, hey, we have to manage this because without it, our ability to manage the resources and build out of the abundance that it produces and everything else that follows goes into the hands of somebody who is not friendly to us. And that's, again, that's the, the very basis foundation. There's a lot more behind it, but that, that's kind of the, the, in, the intro or the foundation of why that's important and how we can begin to understand that. Have you done videos on this? Uh, working on those now. It's all in my book, but we have a whole course coming out on this uh, in January. <clears throat> okay, I want to tell one more at the time, the website. That's regenico.org. R-E-G-E-N-E-C-O.org. That stands for Regenerative Economics. Okay, we'll spell it one more time. R-E-G-E-N-E-C-O.org. Regenico.org. Regenico.org. And name the titles of the books one more time. First one is I Came to Give. And that is, again, the history of this whole monetary economic system from a biblical perspective. Second one is My Ways, the contrast between what man set up in his economic and monetary systems and God's principles. And the final one is Cultivate and Keep, which establishes this base foundation of our role as, as stewards of creation. Okay, let's suppose you're pastoring in the Kansas City area. I know you're not a pastor, but pastoring a church, to my knowledge. But let's suppose you're pastoring in the Kansas City area and uh, you're in, I'm not going to pick the town. I'll say over, you're Overland Park. What the, and you have a congregation, let's say a Sunday morning attendance of a thousand people. What do you tell them to do in order to follow? Practically, what can they do to follow in line with, with what the kind of preparation you're talking about? Yeah, I think what we're doing initially is saying we want to get people back in touch with that aspect of creation. You know, you being from a rural community, that was part of the natural, just that's how they live. They understood the importance of sticking your hands in the ground and watching it produce and just standing back in the awe and wonder and going, wow, this is amazing what creation does. It creates an abundance if we just steward it properly. So people in large uh, communities they can do pot gardening. I live in a, in a, a metro area myself. So we had 15 gallon pots where we set them out, uh, fill them with, uh, with dirt. We planted sweet potatoes and peppers and tomatoes and 
And every pound of food that is grown locally takes that much pressure off of this food supply chain. It may not be much, but you start to tickle at the edge of the margins and simultaneously people begin to understand, even though they're in the middle of a city, wow, this is part of what God wanted for us to, 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 uh, to be a part of, to understand and appreciate creation and just how amazing it is and our responsibility. So then now we can go out and support those local farmers, help encourage more of them to come into the area, create relationships with them where we're buying directly from them and that 1500 miles, you know, food traveling can begin to cease. And over years, and it is years, that ecosystem can build up to where we're not as reliant on this fragile food supply chain that's in place right now. I suppose only those of us raised on the farm will understand this, but I, I have a deep love and, and a healthy God-given reverence of the soil. Yeah. Love the soil. And the, the, the smell of the freshly worked ground when we're getting ready to plant the corn in May. Yes. Or, or the smell of that, of it being plowed with a moldboard plow. I know plowing is not very popular anymore, minimum tillage is, but nonetheless, the, 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 the sights and sounds of that and the, the smell and even the smell of the soil after after a rain, <laughs> it's it's a it's it's quite uh, astounding. So we have a deep love uh, and respect for the soil. So soil conservation. I was raised on that. Terraces, uh, waterways, except yeah. every way you could to preserve the soil. When I'm over in Israel, I'm sometimes told that all the rocky soil I see there is over the years the abuse uh, when the Arabs controlled it for for a thousand a thousand years, whatever it was. And, and lost 15 feet of, of topsoil, it's washed away. Or you look what's washing down in the Mississippi River, the topsoil is lost uh, every year off of America. And you think of the Dust Bowl days, of course. So I have a deep love and respect for the soil. So what you're saying really makes sense. It is a challenge to get a, a thousand people in the heart of a metropolitan area, or thousands uh, trained to do that. The only church I'm aware of, there's probably a number of churches doing this, but I know that uh, in Colorado Springs, we interviewed Pam Holloway, and she's uh, involved with churches training people how, uh, in a modern agrarianism, as it's called, uh, on this. So I, I really respect what you're, uh, what you're doing. We'll look forward to those videos coming out soon. This could be very timely. Well, I think the Holy Spirit's moving in this area, Jim. I'm just seeing more people get into this and start to ask questions about it, even in local churches. I've had meetings with our local church leadership. They kind of get it. So uh, I think the Holy Spirit's moving in this area. We're seeing, you know, my neighbors. I saw gardens pop up in backyards of two or three neighbors this year. So there's something afoot there. Uh, are you available to speak in churches or for various groups on this topic? Sure, absolutely. And how can they contact you? Uh, they can contact me either through the website at regenico.org or you can send me an email at doug.jaden, that tricky spelled last name, T-J-A-D-E-N, at regenico.org. Let's go. Uh, we have another topic I want to cover with you. Uh, I have some more questions on this one. I'm going to table those temporarily. You and I, uh, we met in Guadalajara, Mexico. That's where we first connected at a very important conference there. <clears throat> and in the conversation, we talked a little bit about local currency. I have never heard anyone, I'm going to confess my ignorance, I've never heard anybody use that phrase. 
but it really triggered something. Great interest on my part when you said it. Local currency. Tell me what that is, and are we potentially coming to a time where we may have to learn what local currency is and how to function? Yeah, it's interesting. I, local currencies have been used throughout history, and it's not something that we're taught in Pharaoh's economic system, and I think there's a reason for that. National governments like to protect their sovereign exclusive control over the creation, distribution, and management of money and monetary systems. I mean, wherever, I mean, wherever you control the money, you can kind of control the people and control the, what the value that they produce and how it's stewarded. And unfortunately, how they can kind of stick their fingers in there and pull off a little bit of our value as we exchange it and pull it into you know their world and use it for their purposes there's a whole a whole section in the first book that talks about how the system's set up to do exactly that to take and redirect the economic energy as it's transferred between christians steal that the thief is the uh, steal kill and destroy steal that and redirect it to build his kingdom the entire system we have right now are set up to do exactly that and that's that's another thing on monetary history and monetary systems. But generally speaking, throughout history, whenever there's been a crisis, these things pop up called local currencies. I mean, it happened. There's evidence that even uh, during Joseph's time in Egypt, that receipts for stored grain were traded as currency. Well, you obviously had their local currencies made of coinage, but these receipts traded alongside that. That's really the foundation and basis for a local currency. Uh, there was a book written by a gentleman named Bernard Leotard. Changed my life, Jim, literally, called New Money for a New World. And he wrote a second one called Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity in, into Prosperity. And they, they literally were life changers because they caused me well, to just give the one, Will you give the titles one more time for people who are sure. trying to this down? Sure. New Money for a New World, Bernard Leotard. It's on Amazon. And then the second one is Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity into Prosperity. And how do you spell his last name? L-I-E-T-A-E-R. Uh, L-I-E-T-A-E-R. Okay, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. It's just, um, he took a look at money from the perspective of an ecosystem. Again, he, he, he's, he was not a Christian, but he was looking at nature saying, how do ecosystems maintain resiliency, functionality? How do they steward and manage and push resources where they're needed to be most efficient? Efficient at the same time as being resilient. I mean, there's a whole window of viability he talks about in terms of these natural ecosystems. But in the bottom line is, it means there are multiple pathways, multiple types of organisms in that have a symbiotic relationship in that ecosystem. Well, when you look at money that way, you say, okay, we have the national currencies, they perform their function. There, we can have also these networks of local currencies that are brought into existence and they perform a different function that actually supplements the national currencies and provides uh, an unlocking of latent resources that the national currencies can't touch for a variety of reasons that are beyond what we can probably discuss today. But they really pop up in times of, of hardship. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Back in World War, uh, excuse me, not World War II, it was the Great Depression. 
there were two, uh, the two examples that I can give you. One is the German war on, uh, it came up during the great depression. It was backed. It was a paper script that was backed by coal from a local mine. So this, this community had an unemployment rate of like 30% and they're saying this is untenable. Well, they knew about local currencies. So they said, can we put one in place here? Yes, we can. What are we going to back it with? They made the decision coal from the local mine. They ended up reducing uh, unemployment in that community from 30% down to 5%. And it spread throughout the region. Their success spread throughout the region. Well, the uh, German government looked at that and said, we don't like it, outlawed it. And all of a sudden, you know, that, that support system went away and unemployment went back to pre uh, or to, to the depression levels. Similar thing happened in an Australian uh, community. They, it would, theirs was called the Warble. But the reality is these currencies, and again, they can be backed by whatever the local, and this is the principle of localism, whatever the local community says, okay, we agree to do that because money is actually a social contract. Money itself is a social contract between people. What are we going to use as a medium of exchange? We agree on it. We agree on the value. That's a contract. We use that as long as uh, we, we agree to, and when we want to dissolve it, we dissolve it. That's a monetary system. And so those things pop up in, in times of hardship. There are literally hundreds of these currencies being used today uh, in Japan. We wonder why the Japanese economy hasn't failed, even though its monetary system and economy has been struggling for decades. A lot of people attribute that to these local currencies, this network of local currencies that's over there. They're in use here in the United States. Uh, there's a Berkshire buck, I think, in the Northeast, it's called. A new one was spun up in Washington. So they're not anything that is completely outside of the realm of, of uh, you know, this crazy thinking. It's just that they're not very uh, well popularized and they aren't discussed much. And certainly they aren't taught about in our textbooks because they do compete in a way with the national currencies. So how does that work? You're in a community there. I, I, I assume that they're most needed when there's a major time of economic turbulence in the culture. That's when they're most valuable. Is that correct? They can be used then, and that's generally when people turn toward them, but they can be used at any time. Okay. I mean, if you think let's suppose, of, let's suppose, I'm going to take an example. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, go, go, go right ahead, Jim. Well, uh, let's suppose you're sitting there in Kansas City, which is a major metropolitan area. Somebody in official capacity has to determine what these are, what their value. And let's suppose uh, um, it, it's interest in owning parts of Arrowhead Stadium. <laughs> okay. and, decided, and they they developed something called the Kansas City Buck. Yep. And a, a bank or a government has to issue this in some way, does it not? No, actually not. No. So, so you, you, Doug Jaden, could issue them and 50 of your neighbors could go on um, trading with each other on the Kansas City Buck. Yes. Assuming, assuming you have control of Arrowhead Stadium and can, and can back it up. Right. It's important, you, it's important that you have ownership or stewardship of that asset that's backing it. But yes, those those things are in place, Jim, around the country. They, they exist. They're in, they're in small pockets because we haven't we haven't recently experienced the economic hardship that popularizes them. We could get there, 
but it's something that's not out of the realm of possibility to institute pretty quickly. I was in conversation with a gentleman who I've known for years. He's been working in Kenya to put these local currencies in place. And we talked last week. He's got a network of them throughout Kenya. And I asked him specifically, how do you spin these up pretty quickly in times of hardship? And he said, well, there are protocols in place. You know, I can get you a document. And so we're talking about that. But these things are they're just out there. OK, let's go to the West Virginia illustration or wherever the coal was. No, that was the noise. Germany, wasn't it? Yeah, that was Germany. OK, I was thinking coal. I was thinking West Virginia. But in Germany. So here we are with all this coal on the ground. Or was it coal? It was already mined. Both. OK, so who let's suppose we have a truckload of coal here, a train car load of coal. Somebody's got to own that to issue things off of that. So you can't just arbitrarily say, well, there's coal in the earth. So so this this you can have so much coal in here that hasn't even been dug. You don't even own it. So it has to be something that's owned by you before you can issue the currency. Correct. Yes. OK, suppose you own 25 railroad cars full of coal. And you're in Germany then. So how does that how does that work? Tell me how you would start that and how you get your neighbors using this. We'll call it the German buck for right now. Well, first of all, let me say there are a lot of different ways to back currencies. There are many, many different types of local currencies out there. One that has backing of a tangible asset is one one way to do it. That is that's easy for a lot of people to get their minds wrapped around because they can think about the gold standard we were on where there was gold involved. Yet there was paper money trading around out there that was deemable for the gold in the bank. So people are a little more comfortable with that. But there are mutual credit systems that trade now as well, where you can say, all right, we're going to put a set of receipts out there and they represent a claim on my time, like a time bank. If I spend this with you, you owe me an hour of your time. So it's the examples in ways and how to do this are many. But in your case, yes, somebody somebody would need to own that and then say, we're going to set it aside as backing for that. And in some ways they can say, all right, I'm going to redeem that just like I would for gold and silver. I'll go get a lump of coal or whatever weight of coal represents the equal amount of value for that script that I have. And I'm going to go burn it for heat in my house. Fine. That's it. You can set up systems like that. And you issue the script just on the issue in the script part, you decide on, OK, what's the type of paper we want? What are the markings on it? Again, it's a contract. It's literally a social contract between the people in the community that they agree to use that. They understand the terms. They understand the risks. They understand the value and all of that. And they said, yes, we want to do this because it will facilitate a medium of exchange and keep economic activity going because the national currency is either hyperinflated away or through or not not available because of, you know, instead of inflation, deflation. Those who I most trust when they talk about the potential implosion of our government. They do talk about going local. Everything goes local. And some even I've interviewed on World Prayer Network have felt like Washington, D.C. is so top heavy, it cannot be sustained. 
and something will come down that will force us to go local. That's hard for us to imagine, but everything hyper-localized instead of centralized is very difficult to comprehend, both in the food supply and now on this very unusual area in, in coinage or some kind of a currency. So when we're talking about local currency, am I correct that though it could be done in times of peace, no one's going to spend their time trying to figure that out. Nobody's going to understand it or care about it. It's going to be only in a moment of crisis that something like this would emerge. Again, generally speaking on wide adoption, probably yes. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we could, you could supplement them today uh, in your local community and, and you can access, the whole idea behind them is accessing latent economic potential that can't be touched because of scarcity of the national currency. And that's a whole other topic. It could be done today and we'd see increased prosperity economically, but it generally isn't until things get really tough, to your point. Okay, if you were helping to organize the people there in Olathe, Kansas, and you're in a national crisis and everything's gone tightly local, how would you advise, would, would you go to the try to see if the mayor and the city council can set this up? Would you go to your local bank? Would you just gather 25 of your neighbors and try to, how would you set this up and begin such a thing like this? This could be not an academic discussion what I'm asking. This could become something that people who are listening right now may need to know very soon. No, it's a very good question. and. You touched on the people that need to be involved in that. I don't know that local banks are necessarily. They may be if it's a local bank, truly, and not one of the national banks. But certainly you want your civil government involved. You want your mayor. You want your city council. You want local business people involved because they're going to be the ones that are going to be trading and exchanging this currency. They need to know what it is, how it functions, where their risks are. And then there has to be just a general uh, education in the population saying, this is what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's the history behind it. There is some safety here. It's not completely crazy. And then you let them decide whether they want to do it or not. It's, it's their decision. Is this actually legal or constitutional? Yes, the legalities behind it, the constitutionality behind it is subject to question. As you know, we live in a post-constitutional country anyhow. So whether it's constitutional or not may be a bit of a uh, a non-starter. In terms of legality, there are barter laws in place, which in many ways, this is what you're doing. You're using a medium of exchange in a barter, in type of a barter form to replace barter that, uh, that can be used. And again, they're in use right now. So the specifics of the, of the laws depends on how they're constructed and who's involved and, uh, and making sure that the local authorities are properly notified and kind of looped into the whole process. I was under the impression that the U.S. Constitution allows a state to do its own banking system so long as it's gold-based. That was my impression, and that's based upon what they're trying to do in Texas and even perhaps in Oklahoma. But in Texas, our friend Kevin Freeman, who we've interviewed here several times, attempting to get gold bullion, gold-backed, uh, literally a depository where you can use a credit card, but it's based on gold, held by the state of Texas. So um, you, you, you think that the Constitution does allow something else besides gold to be used uh, as backing up the, the money? Yeah, I do believe so. And again, it's, it's about the, 
the charter that's given within and how that's given within the local community. It has to do with the barter laws that are set up, which, again, going into those right now would be well beyond the scope. Cryptocurrencies have touched those. Frankly, cryptocurrencies, a lot of those have been kind of touted as being used for local currency. So the regulations behind those have been brought into the discussion and some of how that kind of paves the way for local currencies. So it's not a simple question, Jim. I'm not trying to say that it is. There are some gray areas that need to be kind of worked out through that whole thing. But in general, in times of crisis, economic crisis, there aren't too many people that are going to say, you know what, we're not going to allow that or do that in order to keep our families from starving. Crisis mode is a completely different world, as you know. Well, what would you want to say as a final comment? We're unfortunately out of time. I'd like to spend about a day and a half just picking your brain on all of this. But what would you say, whether it's on the food shortage or on local currency, would you want to say as kind of a cap off to this? Well, I think it's important that people just begin to get a foundation of an understanding of the biblical principles that support all of this. Because if it's not grounded in scripture, then it's out the window as far as I'm concerned. But it does exist. And that's one of the things we're trying to provide through Regenico is that basis level of understanding and education of the biblical principles that support everything we're talking about. So that when it comes time to say we need to consider these, we can begin from a foundation that's solid and not, again, get caught up in all the noise and storm of what men and what they're going to be saying in these times of crisis and offering their solutions. So how can we do that based on a foundation locally that's biblically based? Well, I think it's quite remarkable the work you're doing. And I'm going to give those titles one more time. Well, I'm going to have you do Regenico, R-E-G-E-N-E-C-O dot org. Correct. Not org. And then give you the title of your three books one more. They can buy the three books through your website. Yes. Yes. First one is one more time. First one is I came to give. And it really is just, you know, Jesus saying, hey, I came to give an abundant life. What's the economic system behind how that was intended to happen? That's kind of the gist of the book. My ways is we've got this economic system today. It contrasts with God's ways in these very important areas. And how do we get back to what God intended us to do? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And then Cultivate and Keep makes the case for stewardship of creation by the body of Christ as the foundation of all economics and why we need to be keenly interested in reclaiming that today. Folks, what you've been listening to is Doug Jaden. That's spelled with a silent T, T-J-A-D-E-N. And notice how many times you've referred to scripture. Here we've talked about food, food shortages, food supplies, scriptural. And here we've talked about money, the nature of money, and economic systems, macro systems, micro systems, and local economy, local currency, rather. And all the time is scriptural, biblical. That's what marks this man's life and his thinking. And that's the purpose of well-versed. We bring biblical principles that govern us to government leaders and to the people who elect them. And so, Doug, you fit well within the scope of what our dream is to try to impact this world, to understand that God thought of it first, God thought of it best. And when God thinks of it, we, we can't improve on it, and we should, nor should we even try. So we're going to want to have you back on again. But I'm so appreciative of this. And folks, we're going to go 
got a lot to pray for. Our nation's food shortages, well, that gets our attention. And then our money supply, which obviously is directly related to food as well. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.